Good morning. Please take out your Bibles to 1 Samuel chapter 3, and also if you do not have the message outline, try out those center doors, pick one of those up. <clears throat> you know, this morning, I've been reading uh, this week about famines, kind of, it sounds kind of downer, but reading about famines, uh, I've never experienced a famine, I've experienced a fast, but famines are different. Famines where there is no food, and there have been famines all over the world, even from the beginning of time. And famines are caused by pestilence or weather condition that wipes out a crop and there's no food for the people to eat, right? For a long stretch of time in China's history, there was a large famine almost every year there. And, and during the Dark Ages, there were 95 separate, separate famines in the country of Britain. Every country has experienced some kind of famine, and every one of those famines would take the lives of a handful to hundreds of thousands of people. This morning, I want to talk to you about a famine, but not that kind of famine. It's a famine of the Word of God that every country has experienced as well. And it may not be because the Word of God is not prevalent in those countries. It may be because there's just not a thirst and hunger for the Word of God. As a result, thousands of people will die a much longer death apart from God, right? We're in our series this morning, A Nation in Trouble. And it's from 1 Samuel. If you have your Bibles, the 1 Samuel chapter 3, and you remember the context it's during the time period of the judges where they're in these cycles that would happen that God would call a judge and he would reveal or he would declare what he wanted them to do. They would be obedient, but after time they would have spiritual apathy. There would be disobedience. Then God would bring judgment and then he would appoint a new judge. Then it would happen again. God would reveal. They would obey. Spiritual apathy would come, lead to disobedience. God would bring judgment, a new judge. Every time you see a new judge in the book of Judges, God is repeating that cycle over and over and over again till you get to the point, the very last book in the book of Judges, Judges chapter 21, verse 25. Hopefully you've got it memorized. In those days there was no king in Israel, and everyone did what was right in their own eyes. So there was a, a moral mess, a moral mess, and God had not spoken for quite some time, the Bible tells us. He addresses that in 1 Samuel chapter 3. Let's look at the first verse. It says, the boy Samuel ministered before the Lord under Eli. In those days, the word of the Lord was rare. There were not many visions. Let me kind of give you the, the, the key principles of the story so we caught up. Eli's the high priest, right? And he has two sons, Hophni and Phinehas. The Bible calls them that they were wicked because they did a couple of major things wrong. One of them is they were spiritual, in spiritual leadership positions, but they were not spiritual leaders. They did not know God. They had no regard from God. So they're all in it for what they could get out of it, what they could gain. The second thing they did, they were immoral men. They were, took advantage of women because of their leadership of, of position. They were abusers of women. And God said, this is it. These are the people who are supposed to be mediating to God for the sins of the nation. But their sins are greater than the nation. And, and so this whole group of people knew about it. And Eli, their father, heard about it. And he kind of confronted them, but they did not change. So in the meantime... God is going to do something about them, about this. He's not going to sit by and watch it. He's going to do something. He's going to reveal. He's going to speak to a nation, but he's not going to do it by some king riding in on a white horse. He starts the story out with a, a woman. It's a beautiful story who wanted to have a child, and she could not have a child. And so you remember her name? What was her name? Hannah. Say Hannah. Hannah, right? Hannah. Hannah was her name. And remember, she would worship. She would Every year they would go up to Shiloh to that festival and they would worship. It was the spiritual capital of Israel at that time. It's where the tent of meeting, where the tabernacle, where the temple was, because the, it was before the temple was built in Jerusalem when the Ark of the Covenant was in there. So they would go up to worship and 
one day, Hannah is there alongside with her husband, Okana, and his other wife, who had children, that Hannah is crying out to the Lord. He says, Lord, if you'd give me a child, I promise to give this child back to you that he might serve you all the days of his life. And Eli the priest is there, and he sees her mouth moving, but he doesn't see any words coming from her mouth, and so he assumes that she's drunk, and he confronts her. And she says, I'm not drunk. I'm not drunk. I'm just so intensely praying to God that he might give me a child, and I promise that if he gives me a child, I'll dedicate him back to the Lord. He might serve him all the days of his life. Well, Eli blesses her, and she ends up having a child. And approximately three to four years later, when her child was about three years of age, uh, she brings him back to Shiloh, and she sees Eli, the high priest, there, and she kind of says, you remember me? I'm the one that you thought was drunk, but I was praying for a child. Well, here's the child. I'm giving him to you to raise, to mentor him, take care of him, and I'll be back next year. The child's name was say, uh, Samuel. Samuel, the book's written after Samuel. So Samuel was such a contrast to these older sons of Eli who were selfish and in it for their own selfish motives. Samuel was growing to be more like God. He's a beautiful picture of Jesus, Samuel is. A lot of resemblance what we see. Beautiful picture of Jesus. The Bible says in the verse that we just read, in those days, the word of the Lord was rare. There were not many visions. So probably one of the misapplied verses in all the Bible is Proverbs 29, verse 18. The King James reads it like this, where there is no vision, the people perish. And if you ever read a Christian leadership book, you would probably find in the first chapter reference to this passage, Proverbs 29, 18, which basically says a leader has to have vision, a leader has to see into the future. He has to be able to cast that vision, and he has to be able to lead the people in the, in the, into the future. And vision is so important for a leader. That may be so, but it doesn't come from that verse, Proverbs 29, 18. That verse is talking about the vision there is a revelation from God is what they were having. And some of the more modern translations will translate Proverbs 29, 18. will say where there is no prophetic vision, where there is no revelation, people cast off restraint. Other, other words, what that means is where there is no Bible, where God has not spoken, people live without boundaries, and they cast off all restraint, and they live. It's very immoral. And that describes the time. It was very immoral. Everyone was doing what they saw fit. Everyone was doing what they saw was right in their own eyes, right? So God had not spoken for quite some time, and, but into this, God will speak. And into this, God will break a silence, and he's going to do it through a young man by the name of Samuel. He's going to do it. So I'm going to share three things about how God draws us near. God draws us near in three ways, if you have your outline. Uh, God's word leads us. He leads us. God always wants to lead us. And so let's read 1 Samuel chapter 3, verse 2. One night, Eli, whose eyes were becoming so weak that he could barely see, was lying down in his usual place. Let me give you a little bit of the setting so you understand what's going on. Eli is old. Scripture tells us in 1 Samuel chapter 2 that he's very old, he's almost blind, and he's heavy. And his sons are filling in that position now, but Eli is there, and he's still responsible for all the things that are going on. So we get to Eli, we pick up the story in chapter 3, and Eli's there lying in bed, and he has this young attendant by the name of Samuel to take care of him, right? So Samuel presumably is close enough to Eli that if Eli would cry out at night, he would say, Samuel, bring me a glass of water. Samuel, bring me a tissue. Samuel, do this or do that. That Samuel's close enough that he could be there, okay? So we understand the picture. Samuel's close enough that Eli cries out, he could be there. Let's read verse 3. 
The lamp of God had not yet gone out, and Samuel was lying down in the temple of the Lord where the ark of God was. The Bible tells us that Samuel was sleeping in the temple of the Lord, that this is the place, the temple, where people came to worship. This is where they came to worship. And the temple of the Lord had a couple of things in it. We need to understand what was in it. Uh, one of them, beyond, there, beyond the veil, was called the Holy of Holies. That's where the high priest would go in once a year. I talked about that last week. It was a very dangerous to go in there. And before he would go in there, he'd have to sacrifice a bull, and he'd have to place his hand on the bull, and he'd have to confess his sins, his family's sins, and the sins of the nation. He would also put on this white robe, and at the bottom of the white robe would be kind of alternating pomegranates and bells. And if he would go in the Holy of Holies, and he didn't confess all of his sins, those bells would stop ringing because he would drop dead. God would strike him down. And they would, he would have a rope tied around his waist, and they'd pull on that rope to pull him out of the Holy of Holies. The other thing that we find that, that, that is there is the Ark of the Covenant would be there. Very, very important. It was considered the most holy spot for Israel, the Ark of the Covenant. And it wasn't the presence of God. It wasn't the presence. God cannot be confined to a world, to a universe. It's certainly not a box, but it represented the presence of God. It was supposed to be very, very holy. And can you imagine sleeping at night in the temple where the Ark of the Covenant was, representing the presence of God, you're sleeping there at night. Could you imagine sleeping there? But we also find something else inside of that temple that the Bible tells us in verse 3. It says, the lamp of God had not yet gone out. The lamp of God was not a nightlight in the temple. That's not what it was there for. It talked about specifically and formally in Exodus chapter 27, verses 20 through 21, where it says the lamp of God was an olive oil lantern that was supposed to stay lit throughout the night, from evening till morning. And the priests were supposed to watch it and make sure it stayed lit. And that's probably why Samuel was there to give attention to that lamp. And, and so it was very symbolic, and there's so much symbolism that's going on in the story that we're reading. Because here's Eli over here, blinded in the darkness, symbolic of a nation that he's leading, that's blinded in the darkness. And then you have Samuel next to the Ark of the Covenant, representing the presence of God, and right near was the lamp of God, which was symbolism for God has, has not given up. God is still at work, and the lamp has to continue to be burning at all times. At, from evening till morning. And so this would be the last reference that we have uh, in the Old Testament of the lamp of God, the last reference that the Bible gives us. But I think there's a picture here for us as well. If you would read Revelations chapters 2 and 3, Jesus is dictating uh, letters to the seven churches of Asia Minor, and he's in these letters he says, this is what you've done well, and this is what you have not done so well, and this is how you need to change that you need to repent, and if you don't repent, he says, I'm going to come and remove my lampstand from you. In other words, he's saying, it's over. You're done. You can continue to meet, but I won't be meeting with you. My work won't continue. You never want to go to a church where God is not going, right? The lamp has to be burning. The lamp has to be burning. So here's Samuel. Let's pick up the story of what happened. Samuel's there. He's at, at the temple, and it's night. How do we know it's night? Because the lamp of God is burning. The lamp of God is burning. So he's watching, and then he hears this voice, Samuel, Samuel. And he runs to Eli, and he says, here, here, here I am, you called me. And Eli says, I didn't call you, go back and lie back down. So Samuel goes back and lie back down in his cot or his mat or whatever he's lying on, and he hears a voice again, the second time, Samuel, Samuel. And this time he doesn't run. He just comes to Eli, and he says, here I am, you called me. And Eli said, I didn't call you, go back and lie back down. And Samuel goes and lies back down. Now, there's a missing piece of information here. I don't know if you catch it, a missing piece of information. When I'm asking the question, Samuel, this is God talking. 
don't you know the difference between God's voice and Eli's voice? Wouldn't you think that? Don't you know the difference between the two voices? Whenever there's a story that doesn't make sense, there's always a missing piece of information. I've talked to you about this before, so we have to find out what that is. God gives us the answer in verse 7 so we can understand. In verse 7, Now Samuel did not yet know the Lord. The word of the Lord had not been revealed to him. So those words, Samuel did not yet know the Lord, are the same words used to Hophni and Phinehas in, in chapter 2, but they meant something different there. Because Hophni and Phinehas didn't know the Lord because they didn't want to know the Lord. They had no regard for God. Any reference to God in life means they would have to change their lives, and they had no intention of changing their lives. They were spiritual leaders, but just in that position. They weren't really spiritual leaders. They didn't even know God. They had no regard for Him. But the last part of the verse, explain those words, what they mean in that verse for Samuel, where they had, he had never heard the voice of God, and God had not revealed it. The reason he didn't know God's voice because he's never heard it before. The Bible says he doesn't even know the Lord right now. He's never heard his voice, so that's why he doesn't know the difference between Eli's voice and God's voice. So now after two times, Samuel hears the voice again. Samuel, Samuel. And Samuel goes to Eli and says, here I am, you called me. Now Eli gets it. He understands what's happening here. This is the third time he understands. I can imagine this spiritual leader has lived his life for God, is ready to pass on the batons to his son who are wicked, but now he acknowledges that God is speaking to Samuel. He hears that. And as a spiritual leader, he has to be excited because God is speaking, who's been silent for a long time, but now God is speaking. Yet there has to be a lump in his throat because he recognized that God is speaking, but he's not speaking to him, the high priest. And he's not speaking to his two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, but he's speaking to this boy or this young man, Samuel. So at the same time, he has to have these mixed feelings. Joy, all excited, but yet regret and pain, and maybe even failure that he's seeing here. Eli says to Samuel in verse 9, So Eli told Samuel, Go and lie down, and if he calls you again, say, Speak, Lord, Yahweh, for your servant is listening. So Samuel went and laid down in his place. Samuel goes back, and the lamp of God is still burning. So it's before morning. We know that. It's before morning, right? The lamp of God is still burning. And this time is different. Verse 10. The Lord came and stood there, calling as, the, as at the other times, Samuel, Samuel. Then Samuel said, Speak, for your servant is listening. A few years ago, there was a study down by the University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill, they asked 500 followers of Jesus, what does God look like? And then they put the, together a composite drawing based on the input from the people. And, and their conclusion of the study was simply this, that, that what people thought of God, what they thought God looked like, it was all based on the racial, intellectual, and demographic, bi demographic biases. And then you have the picture. Whatever those are for you, that's your picture. The bottom line, the scripture tells us in John 4, 24, what God looks like. The Bible says that God is spirit, and his worshipers must worship him in spirit and in truth. There are times in the Old Testament where God, who is spirit, will reveal himself in a certain way. Or burning bush, and at times through human form, right? And sometimes you will read, and scholars will believe, that any time that you read those words, find those words, the angel of the Lord appears in the Old Testament, they believe that is Jesus. In pre-incarnate, in pre-Bethlehem form, that he came. And, and looking like a human being, but it was the Son of God. And he came there to reveal a message, to give instruction, to encourage, but then he was gone. Here in this passage, now God has come the fourth time is what we find out. God actually appears. 
he stood there with Samuel. We don't know the form he took. The Bible doesn't tell us the form, but he's there, right there with Samuel, and he's speaking to Samuel. The point I want to make is this. God, through his word, wants to draw you and I near. That's what he wants to do. The same thing he's doing Samuel. When he's calling Samuel, Samuel, God wants to draw him near. He wants to draw Samuel near right now. And he does the same thing with you and I. You know, sometimes we think if I could just, if someone could just find Noah's ark, if they could find Noah's ark, they're going to prove the reliability of the Old Testament. It would prove the reliability of the Bible. Then many people would come to know Jesus as their Savior. And we could just prove the reliability of the Bible. And the, and the uh, Noah's ark would prove that. I don't think that is so. The reason I don't think that is so because of a story that Jesus told in Luke chapter 16. If you know the story, is a story of a rich man who's sitting at his table, had all the food he wanted to eat, and there was a poor man over here named Lazarus who was longing to eat the crumbs from the table. And the Bible says both these men had died, and if you know Scripture, Hebrews 9.27 tells us just as man is destined to die once, and after that, face judgment. So every one of us are going to die one day. We're going to face God one day, right? Every one of us. And remember this. The Bible in 927 says, just as man is destined to die once, it means we die one time, guys. We don't come back and get a second chance. There's no such thing as reincarnation. Hebrews 927 says, no, we die one time, and then we face judgment. And every one of us is going to have to face God. So we get one time to decide where we're going to spend eternity. That's what this life's about. Where are you going to spend eternity? Well, these two men have died, the Bible says, and they went to this place that was divided in parts. There was two parts. And one of them went to Hades, where there was torment. That's where this rich man went, because he did not know God. The other place was called Paradise, or Abraham's bosom, or Abraham's side. This is where the poor man went, where Lazarus went, where they said there was joy and contentment was there. The Bible says there was this great chasm between these two parts, and you could not get from one part to the other part. There's no way you could get across there. So the rich man cries out to Abraham, and he says, he says, would you send Lazarus, would you send him back? Because I have five brothers who don't know Jesus, and if he could go back and tell them, so they would not go to this place of torment. Abraham responds to him and says, they have Moses and the prophets. In other words, they have the word of God. That's what they have. The rich man responds, but if someone would come back from the dead and, and, and go and tell them, then they would believe if someone actually came back from the dead. And sometimes we believe that too, right? And many in the world says, if someone would actually come back from the dead, then I would believe and I would accept Jesus. And, and, and then the response of Jesus was this, the storytelling of Jesus. He's the one telling the story. He says this, if they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be convinced even if someone rises from the dead. And not long after that, who's going to rise from the dead? Jesus. And he rose from the dead, and most of the people did not believe, is what Jesus said. Even if someone comes back from the dead, they will not believe. So don't think that. God has given us this book, the Bible, and the reason he gives us this book is so you and I might know him, and we might be drawn close to him. That's what he wants. That's why he's given us this book. Without this book, we wouldn't know who Jesus is. There's nothing in creation that we can look around the world and realize that God has a son who died on the cross for our sin. The only way we know that is through the word of God, and it tells us that. So if you're here today, you've never put your faith and trust in Jesus yet, I would love to introduce him through the Bible. Not through some uh, argumentation, through some miracles, not through an apologetic book, just through the Word of God. That we might open up the books of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, where it gives the story of Jesus. That you get to know him. Don't reject somebody you don't know. Get to know Jesus. And I'm convinced that if you get into the Word of God and you begin to read it, that the Holy Spirit will work in your heart and your mind and draw you close to Him. Because that's what God does through His Word. 
He draws us close to himself so that you and I wouldn't spend one moment apart from him in a place called Hades, in a place of torment. And I'm convinced that if you get into the word of God and you get to know Jesus, you get to know the one who loves you so much that gave his life for you so you wouldn't have to spend one second of eternity apart from him. He wants you to be with him, to understand him. And if you don't know Jesus yet, put your faith and trust in him. If you have questions about that, please see me after that. Because wouldn't it be horrible that this group would be separated into two parts? Wouldn't that be horrible? We all want to be together in the presence of Jesus, where there's great joy, where there's rejoicing for forevermore, right? So if you don't know Jesus Christ as your Savior, please put your faith and trust in him. If you have questions about that, please see me after, because we all want to be together in the presence of God, right? We want to be in one place, not in two separate places, right? One place in the presence of God. So I wanted to notice, secondly, the second way that God's Word draws us near, God's Word reveals His purposes. And it's so great. It reveals His purposes. So God is speaking to Samuel, verse 11. And the Lord said to Samuel, See, I'm about to do something in Israel that will make the ears of everyone who hears it, uh, of it tingle. That's an expression that's only used two times in Scripture. And to have your ears tingle, it's not a good thing. It's not a good thing. You don't want to have your ears tingle when God said it. Both times it refers, it is used to referring to judgment that's coming. And at the beginning, it's almost the beginning of a monarchy where a king is going to be anointed, uh, Saul. But the second time it's used, God is giving the announcement to the people that the destruction of Jerusalem is coming and the temple is going to be destroyed. And he says, when you hear this, your ears are going to tingle because judgment is coming. Judgment is coming. So Samuel is hearing this in verse 12. At that time, I will carry out against Eli everything I spoke against his family from beginning to end. The destruction he talked about to Eli, God talked to Eli in, in chapter 2. Verse 13. For I told him that I would judge his family forever because of the sin he knew about. His sons made themselves contemptible, and he failed to restrain them. So God is holding Eli, a dad responsible for his son's sin. And, and sometimes we hear fathers say, and sometimes we hear moms say, we need to let our kids find their own way. You ever hear people say that? We need to let our children find their own way. No, no, no. Listen, parents, it is your responsibility to help your children find God's way. The God's way. The Bible tells us that every time we're left to find our own way, it's always separated from God. We always go away from God. Left on our own, we will always, everyone, will go away from God. So we need to help our children to guide them and lead them. That's why you're there, moms and dads and grandparents, there to lead your children to find God's way, because that's the only right way. That's the only way that gives them eternal life. All other ways lead them away from God to a place separated from God, to destruction, to death away from God is what it talks about. So we need to help them find God's way. Eli didn't do that. He failed to restrain his children. My hunch had started very early in his parenting when he was parenting his children. Uh, he failed to restrain them, and perhaps through the years. And even the confrontation he had in chapter 2. You would love to see a passage where he'd come to his children and said, this is what I hear about you. Are you doing these things? That you're blaspheming against God. Then you have to stop it. You have to stop it right now. You need to confess your sin to God. You need to confess it to a nation. If not, you're done as being priest. Your priesthood is over with. You're finished. You're done. But because Eli did not stop them, God says, I will. And judgment is going to come, and there's nothing you can do about it. It's coming. So verse 14, Therefore, I swore to the house of Eli, the guilt of Eli's house will never be atoned for 
by sacrifice of offering. Can you imagine? Samuel's hearing this, where God has been silenced for quite some time, where revelation has been rare, and now he's speaking. But he speaks to a boy who's growing up under the mentorship of Eli. He's got to be struggling with all this. He's got to be struggling with everything he's hearing right now, what God is saying. And, and he said, how do I tell Eli this? I'm sure that Samuel didn't speak one, sleep one wink that night. He stayed awake all night. Let's read verse 15. Samuel laid down until morning, then opened the doors of the house of the Lord. He was afraid to tell Eli the vision. But Eli called him and said, Samuel, my son. Samuel answered her, here I am. What was it he said to you? Eli asked. Do not hide it from me. May God deal with you, be it ever so severely, if you hide from me anything he told you. So Samuel told him everything, hiding nothing from him. Then Eli said, He is the Lord. Let him do what is good in his eyes. When morning came, the Bible says Samuel opened up the doors at the temple. And if I'm Samuel, I'm avoiding Eli, wherever he's at. If I see Eli coming, I'm going out the other door, right? I'm, I'm staying far away, because I don't have good news for Eli. There's no good news. There's no way to shape this to give him good news. So Eli saw Samuel, and he says, Samuel, he says, I want to know, tell me what God said to you last night. I want to hear it all. Don't leave nothing out. So Samuel shared with Eli, and Eli, Eli responds, he is the Lord. Let him do what is good in his eyes. This is a very sad day in the life of a spiritual leader. It's the very sad day in the life of a dad, that judgment is coming, and he can't do anything about it. Can't do anything. It's coming. When we learn from Scripture, what we learn is the purposes of God, what we learn. And whenever we don't understand something, whenever there's that missing piece of information that I talked about, we kind of scratch our head, and, but we go back to the Word of God. And in the Word of God, God reveals his purposes most often, right? And there are times when we get to the Word of God and we can't figure it out, and God says, just trust me, just trust me. And then we get to our memory verse, which is a great verse for this passage, Deuteronomy 29, 29. Let me read it to you, where it says, the secret things belong to the Lord our God. The secret of things are the things that you and I can't figure out, that we don't know. Those are the secret things. But the things revealed, God's Word, belongs to us and to our children forever. They're like treasure that we may follow all the words of the law. So the secret things belong to the Lord our God, and this happens all the times in our lives, where things happen in our lives and circumstances turned upside down by the world and we can't figure it out, right? Instead of us running from God, don't do that. Don't run from God when you can't figure it out. We run toward God. And we get in His Word, and we find in His Word His purposes. We find in His Word that God, who God is. He reveals who He is, right? And yet if God doesn't reveal His purposes of what we're going through, if he doesn't reveal that, God will reveal himself to such a degree that we can trust him. You hear what I just said? It's so important. That as you and I are going through our trials, we're going through our difficult circumstances, that God says, run to my word, and I promise in my word that I'll reveal my purposes. But if I don't reveal my purposes, I'll reveal myself in such a degree that you can trust me whatever you're going through. I may not figure it out. I may not know why it's happening to me, but God says, trust me. Trust me. God is always there. Many times he wants to reveal his purposes, but he do, when he doesn't, he, he reveals himself in such a way that you and I can be comfortable to trust him. I'm going to trust you, God, and I need to trust him. And because of that, I know that all the things work together for good for those who love him, have been called according to his purpose, right? But we need to get back to the word of God. That's why it's so important to be absent from the word of God and be separate from the word of God. Guys, in our life, we, we're not going to be able to trust him. 
We're not going to have this precious word of God where his purposes are, and it reveals who God is as we're going through the circumstances. We need to be in the word of God. So let me share the third way God draws us near. God's word builds his people, builds his people. Not only does God's word draw us to himself, God's word reveals his purposes, but God's word builds his people. Verse 19 and 20. The Lord was with Samuel as he grew up, and let none of his words fall to the ground. And all Israel, from Dan to Beersheba, recognized that Samuel was attested as a prophet of the Lord. A priest as well as a prophet. A prophet was a spokesperson for God. Verse 21. The Lord continued to appear at Shiloh, and there he revealed himself to Samuel through his word. Chapter 4, verse 1. And Samuel's word came to all Israel. Something dramatic had happened. Uh, when we compare 1 Samuel chapter 3, verse 1, where it says, The word of the Lord was rare. There were not many visions. By the time you get to 1 Samuel chapter 4, verse 1, where the word of God was established, it, it was effective. People knew about God's word. They knew it because God had shared it. And all the way, it says, from Dan to the north, from Beersheba to the south. They all knew about it. Everyone knew about it. Everybody heard about it. And what was the difference? It's one sleepless night where God spoke to a man and said, things are going to change. Things are going to change from this day forward. Things are going to change. I'm going to change them. And he did through this young man, Samuel. There are so many applications from this passage, so many points to apply for a Christ follower. May, may I just give you a couple before we take communion? The first one, the Word of God is meant to draw us to himself. That's why God gives it to us, to draw us to himself. So if you don't know Jesus, get into the Word of God so you may know him. That's what it does. When we get into the Word of God, it helps us to know who Jesus is. Without this, we don't know who Jesus is. This is what tells us the truth about Jesus. We hear about him, but it's the Word of God that reveals who he really is. It really reveals the nature and character of God, who he is, and in some places when we see sin, who he is not. So he reveals himself. That's what God does through the Word of God. Secondly, and I think for a lot of us as believers in Jesus Christ, maybe at certain times, at certain seasons of our life, we, we get to know Jesus, but we get occupied. And we get into things, we get so busy, and, and we kind of, that first love that we had for Jesus gets kind of cast aside. And Jesus becomes so distant from us. You, you, you think he's just, you're just so far away. I mean, have you ever been there where you just see Jesus is just so far away? He's not close like he was at one time. He's not right, right here, but he's now that distance. But in reality, when you really think about it, when you really get in the Word of God, you realize that Jesus has not moved at all, right? You and I have moved. Jesus doesn't move. He's always there. It's you and I that have moved from Jesus. And, and my hunch is that what happened at some time in our lives, sometime before that happened, that you and I got away from the Word of God. We stopped getting into the Word of God. And the only way back is to get back into the Word of God. That's the only way back. We've got to get back into His Word, and God is going to speak to us through His Word. And, and, and where Jesus is waiting for us, and He says, Come all to me who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. And maybe that's where you find yourself this morning. Danger of your life with God are not what they used to be. That God seems so distant, so far away. And my, my challenge to you, encouragement to you, is get back on the right track by getting into God's Word, allowing God's Word to get into you. That's what we do. We get into His Word so His Word can get into us. And one of the best ways to do that is to be reminded of who Jesus is, that He's the Son of God, on what he did for us, that he died on the cross for our sins. And one of the best ways to remind of that is, is through communion. Remember Jesus through communion. That's what communion is all about. Where Jesus says, remember me 
that we're taking the elements this morning, we're reminded that we take the bread, the, the cracker, that Jesus gave his body for us on that cross. When we take the juice, it reminds us that Jesus shed his blood for you and I upon that cross, right? That he gave it for us. He established the new covenant. We're from the old covenant. This new covenant's unconditional covenant, not based on my performance, but based upon Jesus. So it's an eternal covenant. It lasts forever. Not conditional on me doing this or that, but me accepting what Jesus so graciously did for me on the cross by faith. And if you know Jesus Christ, your Savior this morning, we invite you to partake of communion this morning. But before you take communion, I'm asking you this morning that you would draw near to Jesus by confessing any sin. That you come and be, be open and honest with him. And this morning, that if you're distant from him, that he's not distant from you, he's right there. He hasn't moved. But if you're distant from him, and, and we all get there, we all have seasons of the life, we're honest with ourselves, we have seasons where we seem closer and some we've seen farther away. Just say, God, reveal what's there and confess it. And maybe just be an apathy for the word of God. I don't ever hunger or thirst. And say, God, give me that. And just confess it. Just come to him and confess that right now. Just confess any sin that stands before you and him. And then also spend some time just thanking him for the cross. That Jesus died on the cross for your sin. That he took your place. He was your substitute on the cross. That he died for you, Jesus did. It was your sins, not his. He had no sin. He died for your sins. That remember him, all that he did. And as we come up, we're not going to pass the elements. The elements are here at these three tables. When you come, take both cups one on top of the other, then take them back to your seat. When we all receive them, we'll take them together at the end, okay? But let's spend some time with God drawing near to him in prayer. Just examine your own hearts and minds and asking God to look at our hearts and minds, okay? Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Lord, you come and we praise you. God, there is no one like you. Absolutely no one like you. No one who loves us like you do. No one who cares for us like you do. No one that is just... Uh, pays attention to us like you do. That, God, you love us. You love us so much you know every detail in our lives. And, Lord, you know when we're distant from you. You know our heart this morning. And so, Lord, I ask you just to reveal our heart to ourselves this morning, Lord. Not rebuking us, Lord, but the way you do in such a loving way. Help us see any sins in our life that we may confess them. And Lord, what's so great about you, about your grace and your mercy, that you promise to forgive them. For every sin that we've committed, you promise to forgive them and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That's kind of God you are, God of second chances. You're not here to beat us up and, and, and to pounce on us, but you're here as a loving Father to love us, to accept us. So Lord, I pray that this morning, whatever sins we may have, that we might confess them before you this morning. And come back and draw close to Jesus. Because that's what you want. Your word draws us close to you. And we've drawn close to you this morning by confessing our sins. And Lord, through that time, we remember what you so graciously did for us upon that cross. That you gave your life for us. That you demonstrated your love for us by coming and dying for my sins. Our sins. The sins of the whole world. That you took our place. And you were willing to take all the punishment and take the wrath of God for us. Help us to remember that, what it cost you. Was it easy? It was difficult. The sacrifice was difficult. And Lord, we're so thankful that you were willing to do that, that you love us that much. So Lord, through this communion, as we take the elements this morning, uh, we 
the symbol of your, your body that you gave and the blood that you shed, that we remember you this morning, who you are and what you gave, that we might confess sin, that we might be drawn closer to you this morning. And Lord, that we unite, unite with you and be able to unite with our brothers and sisters in Christ because, Lord, our sin can confess where our focus is upon you. Glorify yourself through this as we take this. Uh, Lord, uh, reign in our hearts and minds that we might come to you as we take communion together. And Lord, we ask this in that most gracious name, in that wonderful name of Jesus. Amen.